You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So this week's passage, if, we, if you're tracking along with us, we have reached halfway through Mark. We're in Mark chapter 8, and this is the halfway mark, and it's fittingly, because there is this turning point that we're about to see this morning. This is this book of Mark that has been, we've looked at it that this was intentional, that God was, uh, that Mark was writing to the people, to the Roman Christians, and they were under persecution, and, and this was intentional how he wrote it, what he wrote, that he was writing story after story to help inspire them, this is why you believe, this is why you follow. That they, he was giving them a little glimpse of teaching, that he was giving glimpse uh, of healings, uh, of miracles. That if there was any question at all, is Jesus the Messiah, is Jesus the Son of God, is, is Jesus worth all that we're risking following him? Is he worth it? And Mark has been giving story after story saying, yes, check out his ministry. This is why we're following all these things you've heard is true. Mark is writing this from the, from the words that he's got from Peter. Peter, who is here in this story. And so Mark has been sharing this, and we get to about halfway through, and Mark's book, his gospel, makes a sudden shift. And we're going to see that from here on out. Up to this point, Jesus has been paving the way. He's been kind of laying out the groundwork that this is true, that I am the Son of God, that the Messiah is here, as it said in Mark chapter 1. He says that the kingdom of God is near. Time to repent and be baptized. But from here on, we're going to see Jesus is now preparing for the phase two of his ministry. His death. We're going to see he's starting, he'll start predicting about his death. He's going to start being more vocal about it. He's going to start engaging the opposition a little more. And so we're going to see a shift in Mark's gospel and how he's writing and the stories, a shift in, in Jesus' ministry. And so it comes here in the middle of Mark, chapter 8. There's 16 chapters. This is the very middle, and this is the middle, fittingly, a, a shifting point in the gospel. If you have your Bibles, open it, Mark chapter 8. We'll have it up on the, the screens too, or, or if you have your journal book, or if you just want to pull it up on your phone. There's something about reading the text yourself uh, in some way that, that I think there's a great value to dive into the text, to, to make sure that you know what we're saying is true. These are God's words. So we pick up chapter 8, verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. The, the Jews didn't believe in reincarnation. What they're saying is, is that we see the spirit of these great historical leaders on you, Jesus. And the disciples are saying, this is what the people are saying, that, that, that we hear this occasionally when we're, when we're at the well, when we're walking, when we're engaging with the, the normal population. They say, that must be the spirit of John the Baptist on him. Must be the spirit of Elijah. And they get this because there's some similarities, right? If you look, John the Baptist was bold in his preaching. Uh, we see that John has been murdered, beheaded, and, and he was bold in his preaching. And so they think the spirit has come upon Jesus because Jesus is bold. Or they know the stories of Elijah and the amazing miracles Elijah did. Time after time, Elijah could perform miracles, and we see that in Jesus. And so they think this must be the spirit of Elijah, or perhaps just one of the many prophets because the prophets were proclaiming about the kingdom to come. 
This is what Jesus has been telling everybody. The kingdom not only is to come, but is here. Maybe he's one of the prophets. So it's this idea, but the reality is all of them are wrong. They might have got a little bit of Jesus right, but to get a little of Jesus right is still wrong. To see Jesus as a a good person, as a holy teacher, sometimes you'll come across uh, uh, teachings of of wise people that say, oh yes, we believe Jesus was a good teacher. We believe that he was a holy man, that we believe that he did good things. That's not enough. It's not enough to just believe he was good. It's not enough to believe he was a a miracle worker, that he was a bold preacher, that, that he was right about some predictions that wasn't enough You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. For us to go to heaven, we have to believe, we have to confess, we have to to put our faith that Jesus is the Holy One, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was pure, and that he died for our sins, and he rose from the death, that he conquered death, and because of that, our sins are wiped clean. To believe that he's just a, a good person, that he was a holy teacher, it's not enough. These, these people, the, who, when he says, who does the crowd say I am? They didn't quite get it. And so Jesus then goes a little deeper. He digs a little deeper because he knows phase two is coming, his death. And are his disciples ready for that? They've been following around with him for a while. They've been teaching. We see they don't always get the point of all his teaching. I know I wouldn't. Uh, they, they don't always get the point of all the miracles. I know I wouldn't. They're, they're not fully grasping up until this point. And so Jesus is concerned. Are they getting it? Are you guys getting this? Because he knows he's going to die. He knows that the church will continue on through these guys. As they go and spread out and they spread the gospel... He knows the message of Christ has to continue through here. This is the avenue. Are they ready? So he turns to them and says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. They're in the town of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is this town that has this amazing historical background. Earlier in, the, in the, the earlier days, this was a source of a town that was centered around Baal worship. And Baal worship had gone away, but this is still a, a corrupt, dark town. Now it is focused on the god Pan. It's believed that the Greek god Pan was born in one of the caves right here at Caesarea Philippi. And so there's this dedication, there's, there's temples to Pan all over. On top of that, the, the Roman government has created a, a white marble temple in the honor of Caesar. And so up on the hillside, you get the reflection uh, of the Roman government's worship of this uh, cultural worship of the Caesar as a god. You have all the, the little people with trinkets worshiping Pan. You have this great history of worshiping Baal. This has been a very pagan, dark place. On top of that, there's a, this place is set up that there are many caves. It's a rocky area and there's caves. And coming out of one of these caves is a, is a river. This river, they can't find the source of it. It's just an underground spring. But it comes out of this cave and feeds into the Jordan. And the people believed that this was, the, this was, this was a stream that led to the underworld. That in the spring, the spirits would come up from this stream and they would come out and they would go and they would bring life to the plants and to the crops and everything. But then in the fall and winter, they would go back to the underworld through this source. 
This gate to hell is right here at Caesarea Philippi. And so this, this dark, dark place, this place that has a, a marble temple pointing towards Caesar, the cultural god, this pagan religion of Pan, this idea that this is the, the gates of hell is at this town. This is where Peter confesses that Christ is the Messiah. I love that. Because think about it. Sometimes in our life, in the darkest parts, in the worst moments, and when everything seems to be falling apart, this is where some of us have come to meet God in an intimate, real way. And this is where Peter comes and professes who Jesus really is. That he calls him the Messiah. That he calls him the Son of God. It says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. It's a weird thing here, right? Jesus has been trying to lead him, and he finally the disciples get it. They clicks that he's the Messiah, and Jesus warns them not to tell. And to understand that, we got to kind of jump into what is the Messiah at that time. What was this idea of the Messiah that they had coming? Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. They both mean the same thing. It means anointed one. It means that this would be the anointed one. This is the king that's been set forth to rule. And so we often think of Jesus Christ as his name. Christ is his title. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the king. Jesus, the Messiah. And so Peter is confessing that he's the anointed one. And what does that mean in this culture? Well, it means that they've been looking for the Messiah to come and save the Jews. And this idea of saving the Jews was a radical, violent one. For very long, they've been oppressed. From the time of after Solomon dies, they've been oppressed by many different people. The Assyrians first take off, carry off 10 of the tribes, and then the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem. Then the Persians rule them, then their masters were the Greeks, and now the masters are the, are the Romans. For all of time, all these different entities have come in and ruled the Jews, and they have this idea of a Messiah that's going to come and violently take back and set them free. There's this, a lot of writings in between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and New Testament, the Apocrypha. And in these writings, it talks about this desire for, for one to come and set them free. And in these writings, it's a violent conquest. It's one where it says that our enemies will be thrown into hell. And so they have this idea that this Messiah is to come. And when the Messiah comes, we're taken over. The Messiah is going to break us free. The Messiah is, the Messiah is going to overthrow Rome. The Messiah is going to take out our enemies, send them to hell, and we're going to be set free. All that's true. The Messiah came and he set them free. Free from their sins. He set you and I free. That the, the, the enemy, Satan, is banished to hell. All that is true, but it's not how they pictured it. They thought it was going to happen there. And so, Jesus says, don't tell anybody, because if they start telling everyone, hey, he's the Messiah, he's the one that's going to overthrow, we're leading a revolt, we're going to take over Rome, Caesar's going down. So Jesus warns him, don't say anything. And then, almost to the contrary, he begins to teach this about the Messiah. Verse 31 says, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. 
and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The Messiah? The Messiah is not going to be denied. The Messiah is not going to be turned away from our Jewish leaders. The Messiah? There's no way the Messiah is going to get killed. This isn't going to happen. The Messiah is going to kill them. The Messiah is going to be this conqueror. The Messiah is going to lead us into freedom again. And so Jesus starts saying all these things about the Messiah is, and, and Peter is sitting here saying, that's not possible. That's in, it's incapable. This is inconceivable. This can't happen. And so he pulls Jesus aside and it's like, Jesus, you can't be talking like this. You know, we all know you're the Messiah. We, we know you're going to take over. We know you're going to lead in, in this rebellion. We, we got your back. You can't be talking about you dying. It says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. A little harsh, right? Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jesus. Peter is thinking. But the reality is, Satan's there. Satan's not Peter, but Satan is there. Satan is there is taking their minds away. When Jesus says that the Messiah is going to die and then raise again, they didn't catch that part. This is the part that they should be like, whoa, whoa, wait, what? No one's ever rose again. What do you mean by that? All they heard was he's going to die. And Satan says, no, we can't let that happen. Let's fight it. Let's fight it. We're not going to let this happen. Because Satan knows that Jesus is going to die and rise again and and what Jesus says is true. And so, picture this. Remember at the beginning of Mark? Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Mark doesn't tell us much of that story, but the other Gospels do. And in those times, Satan is there with Jesus, tempting him. He's in the wilderness, hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He's, he, he's famished, he, he's struggling. And, D, and the Satan is there tempting him. And here we have Jesus telling the things that Jesus doesn't want to die. Nobody does. This isn't Jesus' heart and passion and desire. Hey, I can't wait. They're going to nail me to a cross. I'm going to be beaten and whipped and, and have nails drugged through my hands. He doesn't want this. And here's Satan saying, you don't have to. It doesn't have to be that way. Let's not make that happen. Same thing in the wilderness. Jesus is hungry and Satan says, it doesn't have to be this way. Let's turn this rocks into bread. Jesus is all alone and, and Satan takes him up on the temple and says, it doesn't have to be this way. Your whole kingdom can be yours. It doesn't have to be this way. And so here, Jesus is saying, what's to happen? And again, Peter says, but as Satan in a different voice says, it doesn't have to be this way. Let's make it change. Make it not happen. And so it seems a little harsh. But this is the Son of God knowing what's to come. Knowing to get me behind me, Satan. Because I don't want this to happen either. But it has to happen. And so he shares that. He shares this, this full, full idea that, that he's going to come and he's going to die and raise again. And Peter says, no, 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 that can't happen. The Messiah, there's no way. And it's great, one of the best parts about, as we read the scriptures now, is that we're on the far end of the story, right? We're, we can look back. We know that Jesus does die. He does raise again, just like he predicted. 
we see that Jesus was right, but we also get the pleasure of seeing Peter, Peter's growth. At this point, he says, no, no, that can't happen. There's no way. That's not how the Messiah works. But later, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in those last times for your sake. He's saying that this story, this plan, this wasn't plan B that he dies. I had plan A in my mind was that we would overtake the Roman government, and now this plan B that he dies. No, no. This is the plan all along. And through him, you, believed in God, you believe in God, who raised from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Peter comes around and sees this was the plan all along. Peter looks back and at that moment and says, yeah, there's, there's that time that I told Jesus, no, no, you're wrong. Let's keep it hush-hush. Yeah, the time he called me Satan, right? But he also knows this was always Jesus' plan. This was the plan. This is the way of the cross. Jesus says, the passage of Mark continues, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This idea of self-denial isn't denying who we are. It isn't giving up our jobs necessarily. It's this idea, or it's not an idea of giving up our home or our hobbies. It's this idea of giving up ourselves. It's not fake humility. It's this idea of putting God first over us. To deny ourselves means that we're pursuing God's plans, his goals, his desires over our own. It means that with our money, with our time, with our resources, we're pursuing God, not our own. That with our, at our moments when we're alone, are we pursuing God's way, habits or are we pursuing unhealthy ones? That we're putting God first before ourselves. It's this idea of self-denial is putting us second and following God. And so Jesus shares this to the disciples and to all his followers. Up to this point, we've seen crowds of thousands following Jesus. Those crowds are going to start to disperse. As we go through Mark, you're going to see the crowds are getting now smaller and smaller. To the point where there's just a few by his side on the cross that day. Because his message isn't an easy one. No one follows Jesus and takes it lightly. You don't follow Jesus under false pretenses that this is going to be an easier life. And anyone that tells you different is not following the scripture's view. Jesus says you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. For some, that might mean costing them their lives. For others, that taking up your cross means to put Jesus first, to put God first, to deny oneself. And so it might mean to change your hobbies to be focused on God. It might mean turning away from porn or affairs. It might mean turning away from addictions or gossip. It means making heavenly priorities over material ones. This is what it looks like for us to take up our cross. It's to let go of those things that we want and follow Jesus. And it isn't easy. This is why the crowds start to change. The crowds start to get smaller. And then he continues, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, 
But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's a big statement. We're going to have to lose our life to save it? There's a story of a, of a monk. It was a fourth century monk named Telemachus. And Telemachus had this idea that he wanted to just be focused on God, that he wanted to spend time with God. And so he had this thought that he would go out to the desert and to a remote place, and he would just spend the rest of his life there meditating on God's word, reading his Bible, eating a humble diet, and just spending time alone, not interacting with anyone. And so he went and he did this for some time, and, and while he was there, he realized this isn't glorifying to God. While I might be drawing closer to God, I'm not pointing anyone else to him. And so he felt God in one of his prayer times speak to him and say, I need you to go to Rome. And so this guy that's been living all alone in the desert goes to the busiest city around and he walks for weeks and months and he finally gets to Rome. He's wearing still the monk habit and he goes and, and he's walking in this giant city. There'd just been a great victory over the Goths. And so people are celebrating in the city and now this is officially a Christian city at this time. But no one's acting like it. There's celebrations going on in the homes, celebrations going on on the streets, celebrations going on in the churches, and a giant celebration going on in the Colosseum. The crowds are all headed that way, and so he heads that way too, and he goes and he joins these people, and he's among 80,000 people in the Colosseum, and the entertainment begins, and that entertainment is gladiators. This is gladiators fighting, uh, trying to kill one another. They're fighting to the death. And Telemachus is just horrified. He sees that these men who Christ died for are now trying to kill each other for entertainment. And so he leaves from his seat and he goes down and he jumps the wall and he's now on the dirt, the dirt part in the middle of the Colosseum and all the crowd is seeing the stranger and this monk in, in, in his robe come. And the monk goes and stands between the two gladiators. And everyone gets quiet and he cries out, in Christ's name, stop the fighting. And all of a sudden, the crowd starts booing, and they start throwing rocks and throwing junk, and, and the gladiators push him aside, and they begin to fight again. And he gets up, and he goes and stands between them again, and he says, in Christ's name, stop fighting. And the gladiator looks up at the emperor, and the emperor gives him a sign, and the gladiator runs his sword right through the monk. And he dies. The crowd was silent. All of a sudden, from the top, a couple people get up from their seats and they start to head out. And more people start to leave. And in complete silence, 80,000 people leave the Colosseum that day. And that's the last time they ever had gladiator fighting at the Colosseum. He had to give up his life to save many. This story, it's a powerful one, it's a true story of someone that was off all alone and here's God calling him, telling him to go to Rome. Why? To die? Yeah. Because in losing his life, he was able to save many. And so for us, what's it look like to, to lose our life? It do, doesn't mean that you have to, to die, but it doesn't mean we have to be willing to follow God to whatever it takes. Hopefully for each one of us, we would never have to die, but, but are we willing to? 
When we went to Taiwan, I didn't know what it was going to be like. We'd never been to Asia. We didn't know the persecution we would face. And so I wrote my family a letter. Wrote my parents a letter that said, if I die when we're there, this was my choice. For Jesus. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to not only die for him, but to live for him? Jesus goes on to say, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? He's weighing uh, temporal, the cost of, a, of temporal glory to eternal glory. Which one is better? There's no question on that. He says, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The question many humans have been trying to figure out for a long time. If, if I'm just good, if I behave, if I, if I give enough money, if I earn enough money, if I buy this, if I do that, if I'm good to my family, all these things, is that going to save my soul? No. Following Jesus is the only thing that will. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. As we read these passages, it's easy to think that salvation can come from earning it. That we got to be good enough and, and to deny ourselves enough and take up our cross. That's not what is going to save us. The scripture is full of examples to know that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Salvation is a gift from God. But if you look at that gift, what is our response? If we receive this gift of salvation, what is our response to the salvation? Are we willing to live for him? Are we willing to give up those things that we've been holding on to and you know God has asked you to let go of? You know that habit is not glorifying and yet you continue to do it. You know that relationship is not God-focused. You know that job is not where God has intended and yet we continue to pursue it and hold on to it with all we have. Are we willing to let go to take up our cross and follow him? Or are we trying to buy, exchange our soul? Are we willing to listen? When God speaks to you, and when sometimes we just blow it off and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just an idea, or oh, that's my conscience, or, or, or we quickly just put it aside, but, but God's whispering to you. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you and encouraging you to do something are you willing to take up your cross, even if it seems like it would be awkward or embarrassing or cost you a little money? Are you willing to do it? This week, as I was writing this message, I was, at, uh, I was getting my oil changed, and so I was just down the street eating some Bojangles and writing this message. And I'm sitting in the corner, and I see this guy come walking from the Mexican restaurant, and he looks a little suspicious. I'll be honest, he looks, he looks shady. It looked like he was, uh, maybe, I just had this sense, this feeling of darkness with him. And he comes up and he's got a backpack and, and I think, maybe I've seen too many movies, but this is the end. And so he comes in and he goes in the bathroom and I said, I know what he's doing in there. He's getting ready to come take me out and take all of us, but I knew he was going gearing for me for some reason. And so I actually pulled out my phone and I sent Sarah a message. I said, I love you. Because I thought when this becomes a Hallmark movie, that's going to be the last thing that I told her, and it's going to be awesome. And so she got a text from me that said, I love you, and I didn't tell her, well, you know, I'm about to get shot in Bojangles. Um, just, I, I love you. 
and, and I waited for him. And then I, uh, we've done some training with the safety team and I've learned like, okay, we're supposed to throw something at him. So I went and filled my drink and I had my drink full because I was like, that'll distract him, Mountain Dew. And I had my computer and that was the heaviest thing, but my most valuable. And I thought, uh, I could swing it. And so I, so I had this all figured out. The guy comes out and he just leaves. He didn't even order anything. He just starts walking up Volunteer Parkway. And it hit me, just this burden that that guy needed love, not fear. That guy needed me to love on him. I'm sitting here writing this message about listening to God's prompting. And, he, and this guy comes, and I felt like God was telling him, you needed to get this guy breakfast. And so I see, and he's still right next door. And I, and I could have gone and been like, hey, hey, sir, can I buy you breakfast? And I didn't. And then it just get heavier and heavier. God's saying, you need to take care of that man. And I see he's even further down the road. And at that point, I think, oh, man, if I had my car, I could buy something for him and I could get to him. But there's no way I can get to him now. And I got to pack up my computer, blah, blah, blah. And I was just, and I made excuses. And then it just hit me. I was just riddled with this feeling that I turned down what God had set up. I missed an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And it just tore on me, and it hurt me. And I continued to work, and I was there for about 45 more minutes. And guess what? The guy came back in. I don't know where he went, but he came back in, and, and he filled his little water bottle with a collection of sodas. And he went back out, and I said, thank you, God. So I got up, and I went and introduced myself. Uh, we were outside. I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm Matt. Uh, can I buy you breakfast? Are you hungry? And he said, you know what? I haven't eaten since yesterday's lunch. And, and you could tell there was something wrong with him. I, I don't know if it was a mental problem or, or drugs or what, but he was not all there. And I just sat with him, and we talked for a while, found out what he'd like to eat, and went and ordered the food, and went back out and, and made him, got him breakfast. I'm so thankful God gave me a second chance to listen. Are we listening? Are we listening to God? Are we willing to deny ourselves and follow him? That at those times where it seemed awkward to go talk to a stranger and offer to buy him breakfast, at that time where I even thought like that guy's got something wrong and he's going to come after me, I didn't even think about loving on him. I just thought about fear. And it hit me so much that this was God's son. God died for that man. Jesus died for him and for me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and love on other people. Love God through loving other people. I hope you get a second chance if there's something you've missed, but it doesn't always work out that easy, that well. It doesn't always work out that great. And so I want to encourage each one of us, the first time God prompts us, the first time God calls us to deny ourselves, the first time God does this, to give everything. If you'll stand with me, I want to read that passage one more time. To close out how we began. Jesus and his disciples were on the on. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. 
But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus asked you, who do you say I am? What is your response? God, we just pray that we would, I pray that each one of us would say, you are the Messiah. I pray that we would come to you with our everything. God, that we we would be able to give you everything that is us, everything that's in us to following you. God, that we would be able to deny ourselves and and do what might be uncomfortable, to do what might be scary, to do what, what feels strange, but if we know it's from you, to be able to follow through, God that we would follow your prompting. God, thank you for the second chances you give us. But also, God, help us act the first time. Help us deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Lord, who do we say you are? We say you're the Messiah. In your name.